I got to be on. Hello. How y'all doing this morning? You guys are the faithful few that no matter what the weather is and how nice it is outside, you came to God's house. No, let me stop. Listen, it's going to be like that all summer long. Some of you are going to be going and, and having a good time. How many of you know, when you spend 11 months or 10 months indoors, how many of you know it's time to get out? Come on. Touch your neighbor and say, it's all good. But here's what you can't do around this church this summer. You cannot complain about how hot it is at all. I don't even want to hear about it. You hear what I'm saying? Listen, it is so good to be with you. Those of you that are online, thank God that we have the ability to reach you. I know for a fact that some of you have watched already and are watching again because you enjoyed the service this morning. I've already got the text messages. So welcome again for the second time for some of you for the first time. Give them a big hand this morning. Those that are online, let them know they're part of us. Listen, for those of you that are new, for the rest of you that are part of our church, we're in the middle of the Heart for the House campaign, and um, we are scheduled to raise $350,000 to address some deferred maintenance that we have on our facility. I don't know if you noticed or not, but the roof on the uh, uh, OCS building, the administrative building, is already being put on. We needed to do that ahead of time by faith so that we had a window of time where sunshine was there to put the roof on. And um, God is doing that. If you will look, there should be a thermometer that says that to date, we are $113,713 toward our goal. Amen. Lord, a big hand clap. That's, that's good. Um, we have also received a generous donation from our brother Tom Hughes down at Christian Assembly. They saw fit. Now watch this. This is another church in California that saw fit to sow a seed in our campaign. Now, they will never sit under that roof. They will never mostly come to this church at all, except for Tom coming to minister to us. But they believed in what God was doing in the house so much that they wanted to be a part of it. Give the Lord a big hand clap for that. That's awesome. I try not to come to the pulpit and bring current affairs over the pulpit. I believe the pulpit is to be used for prophetic things, for the word of the Lord and for the kingdom of God. But at the same time, the church um, through our history has been at times silent, at other times complicit in things that were detrimental to human flourishing in our country. And we have to say something when it comes contrary. Does that make sense? So this morning, it is important that we celebrate this morning Roe v. versus Wade being overturned 50 years it's important. It's important. Um, we are abs- I, I don't think it was ever an argument or ever a debate. The Bible is very, for us, the Bible is very clear when life begins. God is interested in the womb. Now, here's the challenge for you and I. You cannot get on social media, have conversations with people in such a way that your joy overshadows and hurts another individual. There are a lot of ladies in our present company and some that you will meet and some that will come across your feed that need to know that though you celebrate life and you appreciate that, you also at the same time appreciate the hard decisions that some women have had to make because of their social standing, relationship, and any number of things that put them in that position. You cannot allow your joy to rob you of empathy, compassion, and love for them. And from there, you've got to go a step further than that. If you celebrated Roe v. versus Wade and these babies will now be coming into the world, and we hope they do, then you also have to put up your time, your talent, and your treasures to help these women take care of those babies. You can't just be a church that celebrates a political victory or a legal victory, and it is a moral one. It is important. It is imperative. But at the same time, and I'm looking at my wife because I know what I'm about to say, and you don't. Um, at the same time, these children will need places. They will need fathers. They will need mothers. They will need resourcing. These mothers will need us to come around them to make sure that their children, because a vast majority, a large percentage, you do the study, do the statistics, a lot of these children end up in the system, in foster care, on drugs, and different things as their life unfolds because there wasn't a community to come around that woman who made the decision in this particular case to keep the child, which we want. But at the same time, we can't let nonprofits and the government and everybody else take care of these children. There's a church in Southern California by the name of Saddleback underneath the leadership of Rick Warren, who is now transitioning, who decided, who decided that they were going to empty the foster care system of children. And they were going to get a coalition of other churches because they said no child should not have a home as long as we have churches in this community. And today, there are very, very, I think less than 10 
kids in this system in Orange County, and they're going to take care of that in the next several months. So give the Lord a big hand clap. Yeah? So with that being said, I know my wife is saying to herself, okay, so I can bring kids home now. So there goes my empty nest in the empty room that was my office upstairs. Amen? How many ready for God's word this morning? Okay, so last week, my lovely daughter, would you please stand, lovely lady? My daughter, Keisha, helped me with the message last Sunday. Appreciated her. She was, she was voluntold she was going to help me with that message. Did a fantastic job, sweetheart, and uh, enjoyed ministering to you and seeing you release that gift. Want to see more of that? I got notes and stuff for you. If you want to come up right now, we can do it again. No, okay. Thought. She said to me after the service, she said, Dad, you do that every week. I'm like, that's right, because I'm that dude. No, I'm not. But it is a difficult and burden to bear, and it was a joy to share it with you and uh, appreciate it. Amen. But along those lines, we talked about this summer series being entitled Real Community. And, and, and just in the, the title, um, there's a second thought that you would have to have. So then if there is a real community, then there must be an imposter or fake or inauthentic brand of community as well. And I think there are. I think the fact of the matter is, is that we have struggled in America in particular. I'm not preaching to the nations. I'm preaching to us. We have struggled with community. We struggle with what that means and the interdependence of community. Because in everything in America, we prize the individual rights. The individual and, and the simple truth of the matter is, is that God has called you out of that system into the kingdom of God. And the challenge that we have is we try to bring that into the kingdom and they don't coexist very well. Because what God calls community, the world can only imitate or try to impersonate what God has really called us into. And it's such a challenge. And, and, and so I, you know, I was thinking, you know, for me, everything can become a sermon if we're reading. So most of the time, boy, I'm, I'm watching TV with my wife and there's about three channels that she wants to watch. Well, four. HDTV, come on. Um, uh, yeah, that's okay too. But then there's these other ones like Lifetime and Hallmark, which no man should be forced to watch. Brothers, where are you? Say amen. Rise up. We're against the Lifetime channel and Hallmark. Let's go, brothers. In fact, let's go watch TV right now. Watch what we want to watch. But, and then there's this other channel. I don't know why she watches this one. It's, uh, what is it? Life, above, life Below Zero. And there's all these people that I don't understand want to live like 50 yards from the North Pole. I, I don't understand it. No civilization, no nothing. But this time we were watching and there was this guy who killed, he killed a caribou. It was a native man. He was a, he was a, he was a native of the land and he had, you know, markings on his face and he was, he killed this caribou and I'm watching him as he's in the first seconds, he brought it down and then he comes to start dressing it out. And instead of him saying, I killed that, I did that thing. I don't know about you, but if I killed a caribou, I'm gonna be like, yeah, right? He's down carving this thing up, quartering it as it's called, quartering this, and all he's saying to himself is, there's gonna be meat for the elders, there's gonna be meat for the village, there's gonna be meat for everyone. He has not one sentence about himself. Individually, he's not saying there's gonna be meat in my freezer this winter. I don't know about everybody else, but I got mine. It's not what he's saying. He said, listen, even in his, because in his upbringing, in the native village, it was a common, it was a, unit, a unified community. If you had it, it means that I have it. If you kill a caribou and I don't, it means I have meat because I'm in community with you. Do you know that in other countries, they don't necessarily get married. The first priority is not getting married for the sake of love and for what I get out of it. That in a lot of countries, the first consideration for marriages is what does this mean to the family? What does this mean to the rest of us? And some of you got married and you were like, dad, I love them. That settles it. You pay. Let's go. But this is what I'm saying. In different cultures, there's a different way of being. And, and this is why we can't allow ourselves to ever be closed off and in a monoethnic environment because you cut yourselves off of blessings that come through other cultures. 
The reason I know that is because at 16 years old, I found myself in the Marine Corps in the shower with everybody, and then that's a whole nother revelation right there. You go from Baltimore, Chocolate City, to everybody in the shower at one time, and the drill instructor yelling at you, you're all worthless. Every single one of you are worthless. I'm like, good God, what have I done to myself? And then before I could even bat an eye, I'm in California, and people are wearing jerry curls and shower bags on their heads outside. And then from there, I'm in Guam in the space of six months. Talk about a cultural box being blown wide open. And now you start seeing different things in other countries and not to mention stereotypes getting challenged. I thought white people were like this. I thought black people were like that. I thought Latinos were like that. And all of a sudden you actually are in community and you find out that the media lied to me. That sitcoms lied to me. Come on. Now, some of it's true. Y'all know what I'm talking about. How I many know a stereotype is a stereotype because it has a little bit of something in it that is true about those people, but not enough of it to actually fully represent who they are. Amen? And so when we start talking about community, we need a fuller circle than what we have. And Keisha really, I thought, brought that out beautifully, this idea of exclusive versus affinity-based relationships and community. So, so then in America, what we have right now, and we have to be very careful that we are not such, that, that these communities that form are based on affinity and agreement. If we have affinity with one another and the stories and narratives match up somewhat and we agree, especially if we vote the same way, if we see the world the same way, have the same worldview, ideology, then we come together. Those are my people. Well, I'm here to tell you that God has some people for you outside that circle. That you are, and furthermore, you are limited by not having them in your circle. <laughs> See, I learned this in a carnal way. I learned this in Southern California at potlucks at church. Come on, y'all. How many, how many ever been to a potluck before? Just wave at me. You know what a potluck is. How many know a potluck is it could be good or it could be bad? Depending, because everybody can't cook. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But, but here's what I loved about potlucks. Everybody's stuff was put on a table, whether it be the Filipinos bringing lumpia and, 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 and their dishes and chicken adobo, Coco loves that. Whether it be Latinos bringing their dishes and got some enchiladas and, you know, and I know all y'all think the black people bought chicken, but we didn't. <laughs> Just so you know. And I don't even eat watermelon, so there goes your stereotype. But everybody brought their dish, watch this, to share with one another. They weren't asked, they weren't asked to change their cultural distinctions. Their cultural distinctions, distinctions were welcome to the table, and everybody got a little bit of everybody's stuff. Now, I didn't like everybody's stuff. Come on, y'all. But I got a taste of it. And because I got a taste of it, it expanded me. It, it changed. It did something to me. Gave me an appreciation. Come on. Some dishes you find. How I many you know in some cultures, when they cook a dish, it takes all day? Yeah. And some of y'all used to just driving through getting your stuff. Well, when you've had, listen, when you sat down at a meal that took somebody all day to cook, how I many know that's a different kind of meal? Yeah. And you want to approach that in, with, with certain levels of honor and respect. And, and being that I'm my wife's Fourth child, she's like, you better eat every bit of that. But I don't like that. Yeah, but you better eat it. They made it all day long. And we're having this conversation at the table. How many of you ladies are raising a man with kids too? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Marlon, so we had that conversation, and I appreciate it, and I swallowed it, but I didn't like it. Do you understand what I'm saying? But I learned that there's more worshiped at the table or more gained that of, of great value at the table than just my preferences. What I prefer, what I would like, it's what we are enjoying together is better, amen? So, so this morning, I wanna move a little further, but before I do, one of the things that was resonating with many of you that I got so many emails and overwhelmed my box at one point, inbox, on, online, social media, and in my regular personal box, was this idea that many of you, when we hit the point that what makes community difficult for many of us is the community that we experience in our family of origin first. Because that is the community that taught you about community first. 
However you experienced it. And some of you said, man, I experienced great community at home. My mom and dad were great. Got you. That's not everybody's experience. And in some cases, there was favoritism. There was one sister preferred over a brother or sister or sibling rivalries. And mom had a favorite. Dad had another one. And that's what they learned in community. And maybe it was in community that you were rejected. And dad didn't show up. And mom left. And all of these stories. Or, or even worse, said, what, wait, wait. What if you were adopted? And you were of a different ethnicity. Maybe you were Asian or black or Latino and a generous, loving, caring, godly white family adopted you. That's a good environment, right? Until you grow up and start realizing, wait a minute, how come I don't look like my siblings? How come my hair is different than mom's hair and her shampoo doesn't work in my hair? You'd be surprised how many times my wife and I are at the mall and she'll see a biracial child or a black child with a white family. She's like, I just want to do her hair right now. I just want to, we'll be at a restaurant, little girl has got a white mom that doesn't understand how to do her hair, although she's taking care of our needs, she doesn't know how to do her hair because that's a cultural thing. That's something that her mama taught her. There's no class for black ladies to learn how to do that, just so y'all know. They just grow up like, okay, this is what we do, put this hot comb in my hair and straighten this stuff out. Like we, so if we don't live in community, how does that white lady learn how to do hair? She doesn't understand that she can't, her daughter can't take a shower every day and get her hair wet. You, you wanna mess a, white, a black woman up, put her in the pool after she got her hair done. <laughs> so y'all, y'all are, what, what's the problem? All the black ladies are like, that's right. My wife looking at me like, don't even try it. So there's all of these things, and when we come about family, how we've experienced family dictates how we engage community. Your family of origin might still be present in your life right now, not allowing you to really enter into community because somebody in your family told, you don't tell anybody our business, we hand, we're, the, we're the Jenkins family and we take care of our stuff ourselves. And we don't depend on anybody and we don't need anything from anybody. And so this is the family that we are. And so you grew up thinking, well, we don't ask nobody no questions and we don't have any. We just take care of things. And you're always maybe in the in community that you grew up in. You were always the giver. So you were always the blesser. So you always had resources and means. And so all you know is how to give. And then all of a sudden, how many of you notice that God will wrestle you down and allow some circumstances in your life to where you need people to give to you. And you know what that does? That's breaking all that individual stuff down because that's how I grew up. I was like, okay, I don't mind being a blessing, but I don't want to have to need one. What is that? Pride. Because I don't want, and then it's pride on one hand, and it's the sense of I don't want to be vulnerable on the other hand because to be vulnerable, my family of origin taught me something about that too. Now listen, what you need to do is just look straight ahead and don't let anybody know that I'm talking to you right now. But it gets lonely in that island, banished, apart, self-imposed by the way, because you can have community. You'd be surprised how many people are around you that are smiling and they ain't in community. Everybody's around them. They could. They Listen, in fact, people are inviting them to tables. And they show up at the table, but not as themselves. You ever seen anybody in a situation where everybody was trying to be friendly to them and love them, and they were just like at, a, at an arm's distance. They wouldn't, they wouldn't allow themselves to really engage because the tables that they have been at haven't allowed them to be vulnerable, authentic, and to be themselves. How many of you know that that should not be named among us? That you and I have been summoned, and Marley covered this last week in communion. I'm not sure if you noticed that she talked about the communion table. In fact, Jesus has a thing with tables, by the way, in the New Testament. You see Jesus reclining in Matthew's, in Matthew's gospel, when Matthew gets saved, reclining at a table that was set for Matthew's friends who are all tax collectors, prostitutes, and the dregs of society. And here, God himself is sitting down at the table like this. Like, oh my God, I can't believe they're cursing. Oh my God, look at that. Oh, she has no clothes on. Look how short her dress is. Is that what Jesus was doing? Mm -mm. The translation that I read said that Jesus was reclining, chilling, first century urban translation. <laughs> he was chilling. He was relaxing. He wasn't put off by the profanity or the weed smoke or whatever it was that was in the day in the first century. 
He was okay with Matthew being a tax collector and needing to reform and repent and figure his stuff out. But what he wasn't okay with was the hypocrisy of his church to alienate and point the finger at them. Oh, thank you, girl. Go ahead. You can clap. That's all right. In fact, in the New Testament, I cannot find, I've tried, I cannot find anywhere where Jesus divides or alienates anybody or pushes anybody away because of their political affiliation to Rome or anything. I can't find Jesus being upset at sinners at all in the New Testament about anything, but I do find Jesus upset with his church about how they've treated people who don't know him. That's what I found in the New Testament. And that challenges me, because whether you like it or not, there's a little boy down inside of me from First Baptist on Caroline Street in Baltimore that grew up in church, and I say you can't be in church unless the choir has a robe with a big cross on the side of it, and they swaying. How many hear what I'm saying? (laughs) And all the stuff I see in church sometimes, my wife is like, it's going to be okay, babe. I'm like, okay, it's going to be okay. Because there's a little religious spirit that lives inside of me that wants to get out. And every now and then Jesus has to remind me, no, son, I set you free. Can I get into the Word this morning? That's just my introduction. Are you okay? (laughs) Open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 4, and I want to set the stage for our message. The base text for the summer that we've chosen is Acts chapter 4 and 32, and I'm going to read it to you right now. It should be on the board, on on the screens. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that, they, that, they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles ter- testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's ho- great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Spirit birth unity, sacrificial generosity, willingness to shoulder and carry burdens for one another. This community is vitally essential to us. And when we talk about community, we've got to correct back to the first century's model of community, which, by the way, a lot of times communities in developing nations are formed out of need. That, that literally there is no way to survive unless we are in community. What this, what this native man was saying is, is I've got a bounty. I've, I've got this, I've got more meat than I know what to do with. And because of this, my village is now being lifted. When's the last time you and I thought through group rather than individual thought? When's the last time we thought, now listen, I know somebody's like, I'm generous. I, I, I know I got you, but I'm saying... What would you be willing to sell for the sake of somebody who has need on your road? That's why we got to have this text all summer long. And you got to look at it for more than just on the screen. You got to go home and say, God, do I live this text? Where are the areas where I'm good in this text and where are the areas where I'm unwilling, still needing to take a journey? Because all of us are on a journey. Okay, that's like three of you. I'm going to find something you like. Don't worry about it. Let's deal with the pink elephants. See, I, I, I shoot pink elephants. Did you know that? I don't like pink elephants. If there's something that needs to be said, we need to say it. Amen? So, so here's the first couple of pink elephants. Number one, I'm afraid of community. How many would say you're afraid of community based on what you experience? Okay, thank you. I'm afraid of community. How many would say this? I don't like to be thought of as limited or needy. Come on, where you at? Because as, as either you're going to have your hand up at one of these or all of these, or you're going to be at the altar in a minute because... That would be a lying spirit, because I think all of us are found somewhere in here, all right? So, number one, I'm afraid of it because of what I experienced, and, and that challenges me. Number two, I don't like being thought of or needing limited, but did you know that God allows limitations in your life so that you will be forced to live in community? That you would be forced at a certain point, there are certain things that you cannot do that you don't know that you're limited in intellect, limited in resources, limited in knowledge, whatever it is, limited in energy, whatever it is. That so that you would be forced to say to another human being, can you help me? And to your surprise, they say, I would love to, or Tuesday I can, or Wednesday let's do that. And that's the challenge because in your life, maybe in your history, people have said they would and didn't. 
And so now you hold everybody suspect to that experience. And I'm saying that if we're going to move in community together, you're going to need to be healed of that. And the way, now watch this, here's what's going to really mess you up. And the way you get healed of that is by being in community with other human beings who have the potential of hurting you the way that they did. But you are not looking for them to be perfect, nor are you looking for them to secure you. You are being secured in Christ, not them. Does that make sense? Come on, give the Lord a hand clap right now. Okay, so I'm going to get to what I really want to talk about this morning, which is found in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I've entitled this message, Come to the Table. And, and it's imperative that you understand and find yourself and locate yourself in this narrative in the next few minutes. Because it will be impossible for you, because what I want for you and me is that we would all convene tables. That we would all convene tables of influence. You have a sphere of influence of people in your life, people that know you, people that love you, people that trust you, people that need the gospel. How many of you right now have people that are lonely, cut off, and need the church in their life? You know it. Raise your hand right now. Okay. Need Jesus. Got you. So, but what you need is a table because what you don't understand is the culture no longer looks at the church. A lot of times Christians act as if America is a Christian nation. It is not anymore. It's a pluralistic country. We have everybody here. So therefore, your morals, your belief system is not the popular thought of the day, nor is it the prevailing worldview. So that when you tell people to come to church that are far from God, they look at you like you're crazy. For what? Why would I come to your church? And you're like, oh my God, I, I, you don't even know what to do at that point. But what they would do is they would come and eat a meal at your table. They would come, if you had three or four friends at your house, they don't want to come to this building, 1,500 seats, people they don't know, all the stereotypical stuff that they've experienced and seen. They think that we're all judgmental, critical. They think that they're going to be, you know, vilified if they come in here and say something wrong or out of the place or not in, right in the same group thought that everybody's having or not even biblical. They don't even want to tell you about their questions and concerns and doubts and all those kind of things. But what they really want to do, every human being, is belong somewhere with someone, and you are well positioned to provide that place and that space, whether it's at Starbucks, whether it's at Black Rock, whether it's in your backyard, whether it's on your boat on the river this, sun, this summer, maybe you should stop inviting them to church first and invite them to a table that you are convening first. Maybe, maybe, maybe as they get in relationship and trust you, they might be willing to come here and hear me, but your life first is the hook, it's the bait, it's the line, it's everything. Are you hearing me this morning? So in the text that we're going to read, David, it's a familiar portion of scripture for some of you, and it may be reviewed, but that's okay. Paul wrote repeatedly in the New Testament, I put you in remembrance. And so I'm putting you in remembrance as well. David sits as the type of Christ, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, is a type of humanity and you individually, okay? So I want you to see yourself through Mephibosheth. David is Jesus, God, representing him. David is also in the season of his life where his kingdom all around him is settled. No threats. No one is going to assail him. He is in this place of peace and prosperity, and so is the nation. And he has this thought, which we find in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. One day, David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Now, you got to understand that Saul is, is notoriously David's enemy, not because David was upset with him, but because Saul was jealous of him. Because David began to rise in prominence, and his anointing allowed him to have victory. And the ladies one time, how I many you know it's always a lady that does it, y'all? Uh, the ladies sang, 
David or, or Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And at that point, he could not deal with that and chased him, persecuted him to kill him, was afraid, was, was, was absolutely afraid of the anointing on his life, the grace on his life, and the popularity and notoriety that he had. So that David in this moment, to think to show kindness to somebody from Saul's house is a little bit unthinkable. Are you with me? So he does. He says, Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet, though. Verse 4, where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the, at the home of Makura, son of Emil. So David sent for him and brought him from Makura's house. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid. So now why, why would David say that right away? Well, the reason is, is you go back in the Old Testament and you can see, and if, whether you read movies or read the Bible or not, it doesn't matter. One of the things that you would do if you were a king to secure your throne is to make sure you exterminated any predecessors, heirs that could come and claim, take vengeance against you or, or lead a coup over you to overthrow your kingdom. This is different what David is doing. Are you with me? He says, don't be afraid, which he should have been afraid that he was going to kill him. But David has something else in mind. How many know that God has something else in mind rather than judgment? That, that God has something else in mind other than eternal judgment for our, for our generation. Come on. For those, I'm not even talking about those on whatever, whatever planet you think or whatever, whatever group affiliation or affinity that you think they should be in to be deserving of salvation. I'm talking about the people that are far from God, their life, their morals, their sexuality, their every, everything about them is an affront to God. And God's like, yeah, I want them at my table. They're, they're your family members. They're created in God's image. That, that literally the reason that you and I haven't gone on to be with Jesus and Jesus hasn't returned is because he's long-suffering, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everybody would have a seat at his table when his kingdom comes. Come on, give the Lord a hand clap right now. That's... So David says in verse 7, he said, don't be afraid, David said, I intend to show you kindness to you because of the promise of because of the promise to your father Jonathan I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul and you will eat here with me at the king's table Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and explained exclaimed who who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me then the king summoned Saul's notice he ignored him David never even answers that one then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I've given, you, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Yes, and go skip down. Yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant. I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Verse 13, Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both his feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly. Say regularly. Say regularly. Regularly at the king's table. Now, again, God's love is being displayed through David. We're using David as a type to see God's love in a natural sense. This man should be his enemy, should be somebody he wants to keep at arm's length, and yet he brings him to the table with his sons and says, I want you to sit here. I want you to partake. In fact, the, the guy, Ziba, who, who gives the report, ends up being Mephibosheth's servant. Him and his sons now are going to work the fields for him. But, but notice this reversal of fortune, this, this absolute story of a reverse. Mephibosheth is not going to work those fields. He's not going to eat from those fields. He's going to eat at David's table. Now, I don't know about you, but I watch a lot of those, that period pieces, uh, period piece movies and different things, mainly because Jocelyn and Coco live in my house or have lived in my house, Yeah. And, and have you seen those long banquet tables right, where they're feasting and that type of thing? This is David, the greatest king of Israel. Can you imagine for a second what that table would have looked like? And can you imagine if you're Mephibosheth, which, by the way, you'd have to ask yourself if you're me, inquiring minds want to know, how does your feet get crippled? 
What happened that made you, now we find him at one stage in his life with crippled feet, but what happened? Okay, I'm glad you asked. 2 Samuel 4 reveals the story. When Jonathan and Saul, when the news that Jonathan and Saul had been killed arrived, the nurse that was taking care of Mephibosheth as a young child heard the news, started running, and dropped him. And as she dropped him, his legs became bowed, and he was crippled the rest of his life. You know where I'm going with that, don't you? You'd be surprised how many of you got dropped at a young age that makes it difficult for you to be in community right now. Somebody that should have secured you, should have held you. You should have been secure in their arms. You should have been able to trust them, able to depend on them, able to lean on them. Their wisdom and all that. And then all you got from them was abuse, neglect, abandonment. And all of a sudden you walk through life with bold legs. And do you know that Mephibosheth is a grown man with a son apparently in the text? Because the son is going to eat too, but, but generationally. But, but do you know what it's like to always need somebody? Come on, online. Do you know what it's like to always need somebody to do something for you? Mephibosheth couldn't go anywhere on his own. He couldn't just get up and walk and just go and just say, you know what? I'm a sovereign person. I go and do what I want to do. He's got to ask somebody, could, could, could you help me get up? Could you help me get over here? How many of you hear what I'm saying this morning? It's intense. It's, it's, it's imperative that you see Mephibosheth, because he is us. And if it wasn't for the goodness and the love and the mercy of the king, David, he would never have found himself at this table. In fact, I can't even stand my grandmother right now would only believe. How many of you believe? How many of you grew up in a household where, where your grandmother and different ones would say, the only way to read the Bible is in the King James Version. That's the only authorized version of the Bible. Anybody? Well, I read it in the King James Version, and, and there's a word there for how he got from Lodabar to Jerusalem. It is called fetch. He got fetched. David said, fetch him. I don't know about you, but there's nothing about me that wants to be fetched. I want to come on my own. On a, and in fact, when I go anywhere, I want my own car, so when I get ready to leave, I can leave when I want to leave. I don't want to depend on nobody. People come late. I don't like being late. I don't want to show up. No, come in. No, what I'm talking about. I'm just talking to myself this morning. <laughs> he said, fetch him. You know why? Because he couldn't get there on his own. He couldn't get to the table on his own. David wants to do something great for him, but he needs to be fetched. He needs to be brought. He needs to be drawn. And you'd be surprised that some of you, <laughs> you're in Christ right now, but somebody fetched you, went and got you, went and told you about it, went and brought you to a service, went and brought you to a meeting, to a concert, or whatever it was. You didn't realize it at the time, but the Holy Spirit was fetching you. You got fetched. You weren't coming. Come on, I don't know about you, but I, listen, when I was a sinner, I was a really good sinner. I wasn't thinking about no church. Are you hearing me? When somebody asked me about church, I said, there are women there, right? And he said, yeah. I said, good, because I know I heard about church women. Not here, there. Come on, calm down, ladies. That was my thought process. And when they fetched me, I arrived at a table, and a seat was prepared for me. There was a place and a space, and you felt the welcome of the body of Christ. And they didn't even know me, and I was standoffish, and I was an angry black man. Hello, y'all. I don't want nobody hugging me, especially somebody from a different ethnicity. You better step off me. Back up, right? You're too friendly. You're too happy. Why are you all happy all the time? Singing all these songs and everybody crying and stuff. I ain't crying. I don't cry. Yet. <laughs> Yet. And that's how people come because they got fetched by the Spirit of God. You say, how'd you get here? Well, I just decided I was going to assure you did. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says no man comes unto the Father except the Spirit first draw them. If you here this morning, whoever brought you, whatever agency you thought of, you, I, I just decided I was going to come to church this morning. Sure you did. You keep thinking that. You keep thinking that. God's got a plan for your life, and he set you up and arranged the circumstances and allowed certain things in your life. Didn't ordain everything that happened to you. Didn't prescribe it, but allowed it so, so that he could work his redemptive plan in all of that chaos, which is all of our lives, to the saving of your soul. But more than that, by using your story as a testimony at your table, not at church, at your table when you tell your story. 
of the grace of God and the mercy of God and how you don't even believe you're still married and how you can have the job that you have and how you can have the life that you have and stock options and this and you got a boat now, you got a car. You know your people were broke. God did that for you. Stop telling everybody you are self-made anything. You are a grace-made whatever it is. Come on, give the Lord a hand clap now. See, the problem is, is we use the gospel only to get people into the church and the church folks start believing they don't need the gospel to live for God every day. And you do. Because we start thinking that our devotion life is what's keeping us. And we start thinking that we serve in church and give our tithes and do all this other stuff. And that's how we're being saved. It's none of that. For by grace have you been saved. Not of works lest any man should boast. We have nothing to boast about. That's why you can't come to church and we start singing songs. You can't just stand there like, yeah, God, I know you're glad I'm here this morning. (laughs) God said, I was God all by myself in eternity past before you were even a blip on the monitor or before your mom and dad ever went to that back room. I was God and I'm going to be God. But I loved you. And I called you out of Lodabar to sit at my table. Lodabar, hmm, funny name, place of no pasture, place of no communication, isolation. That's what this series is doing for us. It's calling us out of Lodabar. It's calling us away from the isolation. You'd be surprised how many people are dying for community and scared to death of the very thing that they want. You'd be surprised how many women say, I want a good man, I want to marry, I want to get married, I want a good man, I want a good family. And then... Scared to death to, to be vulnerable, got hurts, baggage, wounds. Listen, if you're single right now, your chief goal in life is not to get a date. Look at me. Read my black lips. Your chief goal in life is not to get a date. Your goal in life is to heal and be restored and to love God with all of your heart. Watch. So that when, not if, when God sends somebody to you, you will not kill them. Come on. With all your baggage. You start, God married you and all of a sudden you start unpacking all your daddy issues, all your trauma stuff. Why don't you unpack that now while you single? Get therapy now so we don't have to get therapy later. Get out of debt now so we don't have to wrestle with your student loans. Oh, let me find something you like. Hold on, Jesus. Keisha, you want to come back and preach? Come on. There's always an other, though. Mephibosheth, I've stayed on that for a long time, Marlon. I thought about how lonely he might have been, how hurt he might have been, questions he might have had. I, I, I wonder what the first dinner was like. Janice, I wonder what the first dinner was like when Mephibosheth finally sat down. Because you know what it's like when you get invited to dinner and you don't know what people are like and what, what kind of, what's, what's, what's the norm, what's the, what's, what's the social graces of the family. And you just kind of sit there and, and you're like, you, you don't even want to touch the table hardly. <laughs> Have you ever been over anybody's house and it was so neat that it felt like it was a museum? Like you were telling the kids, get, get over here, get over here, don't touch anything, don't, shh, get over here, don't touch anything, sit, sit down. And you had to talk with them outside before you went in. Like, don't you act the food in this house now. Because you don't know. And you brought them in. You're like, hi, praise the Lord. Because you know your kids is crazy. That's why. And you went in the house and you didn't know. And they said, no, just have it. My house is your house. Don't worry about it. And all of a sudden, after about 10 minutes or so, and so much so, you're like, okay. You can relax a little bit, right? My kids, okay, I know my kids, you know. And maybe the second then or the third when he probably unpacked himself more and more as time would go by. And I think that's what you've got to do when you come here. You've got to be like, okay, I, I like Sunday. Sunday's good, okay. But there's another step called community groups, life groups, soap groups, where you actually get out of rows and get around tables. Because around tables is where intimacy starts happening and stories get shared one to the other and bonds get formed at tables. David was brought to a table that he could, I mean, David brought Mephibosheth to a table he could never have imagined. 
And I just wonder if he saw himself as an other because there are all kinds of others. And notice what I said last Sunday. Others are people who are usually thought less than. This morning I want to finish this message by saying please ask yourself some incredible questions out of this text because Mephibosheth is brought back to God and to fellowship from the place called Lodabar. And there are people that have been divorced that don't feel like they can belong. There are people that have had abortions that don't feel like they can belong. More failures of every kind, addiction, immigration, people, immigrants come into this country. Can you imagine what it must be like to be an immigrant? And whether you got here legally or illegally, we can deal with that. But, but, but could you imagine coming here to this country after listening to the rhetoric that we've had for the last couple of years? And all you want to do is come and settle in and be a part of the American dream. And you want something more for your family, for your children. We got immigrants in this room right now that come from all over the world. We got Egyptians and Haitians and Africans. We got people all over the room right now. Can you imagine if we set a table that said, hey, we're going to help you get legal status. <laughs> we got you. We're going to help you. We know how to navigate. We have language. We have language skills that you don't have, so we're going to make sure you don't have a need there. We got some lawyer friends that will make sure that you get here legally so you don't get deported. What if the church set tables like this rather than saying, oh, okay, you're not legally, you shouldn't be in this kind of thing. And yeah, you people back up. You're not morally correct. You're that and you're this and the other thing. And notice that Mephibosheth was brought to a table and nobody cared about any of that. They just want, David just wanted to show kindness for Jonathan's sake is what the scripture said. Isn't that what it said? Well, what if you convene tables and you show kindness to people who aren't deserving of it? Not for Jonathan's sake, but for Jesus' sake. You said, yeah, sit with me. Because I remember being you. Are you with me? I remember being you having an immoral life. I remember being you having a child out of wedlock and not sure if anybody's going to love me and love my child too. And I remember coming to church and being addicted and having withdrawals while I was sitting in church and so needing to leave to go smoke a cigarette and I wondered and I wondered when I came to God's house because I was a woman that had lived a certain lifestyle and I didn't have any church clothes and I was wondering if the church ladies and mothers would treat me a certain way and alienate me or whether I would be loved. And, you know, I never had a father, so I'm not used to male authority in my life as a man. So when they started talking to me as an usher a certain way, I felt pulled. But I had been invited to the table, and I couldn't resist the invitation because I'm so long, I've been in Lodabar so long that the pain of that drove me to the table, but I'm still scared to be at your table. I'm not sure if, if you're going to want me if I unpack who I really am at the table. And if I told you that I don't really believe everything that's in the Bible, could I still be at your table? And if I told you that I'm challenged by the things that I read, could I still be at your table? Could I belong before I believed everything you believed? Could I belong before I believed? Would you accept me? Mephibosheth sat under a table with crippled feet, and David never made mention of his feet at all anymore. He just showed kindness. How many know that the Holy Spirit knows how to sanctify and separate, separate people from sin, that you and I don't do that work? The Holy Spirit does. We create a space of love, unconditional love for them and grace, plus truth, and we give them the time to work it out. And when it happens, it's a beautiful thing because I'm looking at some of you who got grace plus truth and time to work it out in community. And look what God has done. Give the Lord a big hand clap right now. I mean, every head bow and every eye closed, just where you are, this is how we're going to end it today. Every head bow and every eye closed. As you're pondering this message, the text, Mephibosheth is you, it's me, it's humanity. David, picture of Jesus, God the Father, his incredible love, covenant keeping, kept covenant with Jonathan even after he was dead and showed his kindness, kept his word. God is keeping his word to Jesus. He's saving and redeeming and reaching mankind. When you think about the table, 
that you are convening in your life. Who's welcome at the table? Is there anybody that's undeserving that would be shocked that they got an invitation to your house to be at your table, to be with the friends that you have, to be welcomed in, even though they have issues and challenges in their life. Those of you that are online, you have people that, that you would welcome to the table that are others outside the norm, a little odd maybe like me, a little strange. Are they welcomed at tables? Or is your table monoethnic and there isn't any other ethnicity and culture at that table? Wow, you're missing out. And they're missing out on you. And I wonder if there's a place and a space for people who are struggling, whether it be long-term illnesses, because that's a challenge, and people can suffer a little while with people who are sick, but not a long time. I wonder if you would be challenged by the Lord to widen and expand your heart to include some others. Look at me for a minute. I've been in church for as long as I can remember. I can't even remember when I first came to church. I was too young. I can remember, I've been in church this long that I remember when there was no Sunday school that your children just sat in church with you. That was children's church. And I remember them saying repeatedly that Jesus is coming back. You better get, <laughs> Reverend Fitz said, you better get right before you get left. I'm like five years old. I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna get left. <laughs> it's like scared the devil out of me. I went home, I had nightmares, man. I'm gonna get left. I really believe that things are winding up. That God's winding it up for us. And we've got a space of time. Now that's great news for you and I. Our sojourn will be over. I got you. But I got some people in my life that I love that don't know Jesus, that aren't walking with him right now. So I'm saying, Lord, not yet. There's a part of me that's saying, Lord, not yet. Please, Lord, yes. Is that right? How do you find yourself between two? Wanting to be home but recognizing, like Paul said, to be absent in the body, yeah, that's good for me. But to be present with you is much more needful. And there's work to be done. And if you and I don't do it together in the ways that you could in your life, tables and inviting people in so that you can share the gospel. People don't care what you know until they care about how much you love them first. Stand to your feet with me all over the building. killing me, B. Woods. I could cry right now. <laughs> Come on, lift your hands before the Lord said, use me, Lord. Just let that be your heart's cry right now. Just use me. Use me in age as a bridge. Not as a wall to keep anybody out of anything, but as a bridge so that people could travel over me through my story into your loving kingdom to experience your grace, your healing, and your mercy. Lord, use me. Use my resources, whether I'm increased, or whether I have just a little, whether I'm a single mom, single dad, grandma, grandpa, doesn't matter. What I have is yours. Use it for your glory. Draw the lost, the wandering, the broken to me so that the way that you love me, I can have a chance to love them so they can see the Father, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, come on, give the Lord a hand clap. Now, we always say invest in relationships and invite people to God's house. Here's what I would say to you this summer. It's going to be a good summer. Make sure you continue to invest in relationships and watch this. Invite somebody who would be surprised to the barbecue, to the boating, whatever it is you're doing to the hike, to the camp out. Invite others and watch what God does through something simple like inviting them to a table. Amen? Go with God. God's going to go with you. Have a blast. Love you.